Welcome to season three of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two, and you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video maybe you want to use it for one of your trainings these videos on youtube will be there for you to use for free we would love your support we have opened up a patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow you can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you and we'd love for you to visit the patreon page which is called optimal state and yoga therapy hour podcast so let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast hello this is amy wheeler and i am back for my first interview with B Tutin from the UK. Welcome, B. Hi, Amy. So glad to see you looking so well. Thank you. I'm I'm feeling really great and getting more and more energy every day. So I met B through an organization that asked me to come and speak called the Society of Yoga Practitioners, TSYP which is based in the UK, but basically you have volunteers all over that are helping you to run this organization. So be welcome and tell us a little bit about the Society of Yoga Practitioners in the UK. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to the whole team at TSYP. I'm just one of, of the many. Mm. So we're an organization dedicated to disseminating the teachings of Professor Krishnamacharya mm -hmm. and TKV Desika Char. We are a non-profit organization and we're made up of volunteers who work unbelievably hard and well for the organization and for everybody to benefit from this. And we believe that yoga is for everybody and that anyone can do yoga and that we have many tools at our disposition, which means that both for yoga and yoga therapy, there's opportunity for everyone, for transformation and for healing. And that is the most beautiful quotation from Desika Char on the front page of our website, which is that the success of yoga does not lie in the ability to perform postures, but in how it positively changes the way we live our life and our relationships. I just love that. I love that. I'm looking with B because we have a audio version on all the major podcast platforms, but we're now broadcasting a video version of this podcast on YouTube on the channel Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. 
And so we're looking at the Society of Yoga Practitioners website, which is www.tsyp.yoga. And I, I love this. I feel like TKV Deskachar was all about the Vijnanamaya layer of the human system, the, the wisdom, the personality, our communication, our perception, that if our yoga isn't improving those areas, what are we really doing here? Do you have anything else you want to add to that? No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think certainly many people think of yoga perhaps not your listeners, but certainly in the wider population of asana and perhaps a bit of pranayama. But it is so much more than that. And, you know, I'm sure everybody would be very rich if we had a pound or a dollar for every time we heard someone say, I can't do yoga because I'm not bendy. And it's not about that. It's about the individual who comes in front of us. And that is the person we teach. And for that, we have many tools. We have many methodologies, but we certainly have many tools with which we can create a relationship with someone. It's such a beautiful paradigm once you understand what it means to teach to the individual and to go deeply into relationship together. But until you've really experienced it, it's very hard to understand what are they doing, right? So I would love for you to tell us how you got interested in yoga and yoga therapy and this tradition. And I understand you also had an experience with your daughter that you might be willing to share. And she's given permission for you to share. She absolutely has. So it's interesting because I started doing a foundation course, which is what we have where you just want to get to know a bit more about yoga. And I just thought there's something very special here. And when I finished the course, which is one day a month over 11 months, I went on holiday with my daughter, as mothers do. And I noticed that she was reverse breathing. So normally when we breathe, if we breathe as the body's intended to, the breath moves in through our nostrils, the chest expands, then the lungs expand, the diaphragm will move down, and then the abdomen will rise. Similarly, as you exhale, the abdomen falls gently, the diaphragm moves back up, breath moves out through the nostrils. And I was watching her, and I found, and I suddenly saw, that actually when she was breathing, when she breathed in, her tummy went down, and when she breathed out, her tummy rose. Now, I would never have spotted that had I not been on the foundation course and the reason it's important is that at that point, my daughter suffered from quite significant epilepsy. And every time we got an aeroplane, because she didn't like flying, that was a lovely opportunity for her to have an epileptic episode. Anyway, we were on holiday, so I thought, oh, I'll look and see what I could do with this. So I started to work with her. And bear in mind, I'd only been doing the foundation course by putting her book on her abdomen and saying, you know, try and get the book to move up as you breathe in and then just let it fall as you breathe out. Anyway, she was young, she was willing, and above all, she trusted me. And we did this on holiday, a little bit every day, I think morning and evening. And we got on the plane on the way home, first time ever, no fit. And to this day, I get quite emotional about it because it stopped me in my tracks. Wow. I thought, wow, 
what do you think happened? I mean, that that's a pretty remarkable story that someone learns how to breathe properly and suddenly they're not having an epileptic seizure on the airplane like they normally would. Had many, many thoughts over the years. I think on a very energetic level, by beginning to engage abdominal breathing and extending the exhale, we know that we can bring someone into a parasympathetic nervous response where we come back into a state of homeostasis, the body calms down, the mind calms, and therefore the systems are not put under pressure. If you're very anxious about something, then you'll go into a sympathetic nervous response and that will possibly trigger an area for which you have a vulnerability. And in her case, that was epilepsy. But I also think that there's perhaps something deeper going on in that when we really get in touch with our breath, and when we begin to find that place within ourselves, you can call it purusha, you can call it centeredness, whatever anybody wants to call it. There's a certain change in attitude within somebody. And that has a profound effect on, on every dimension of the human being, as it did for her. Absolutely. I agree with you. Those two things, you know, learning how to basically dial down your own nervous system and therefore the nervous system is connected to all the other systems. But even more importantly, when when we're breathing to get in touch with something deep inside ourselves that has no fear, that is unchanging, right, is free from the clashes. It's it's really remarkable that feeling. And I think we've all had that feeling probably when we started yoga, like, whoa, what is this? (laughs) I didn't feel this way an hour ago when I started this class. Totally. Totally. But it's so beautiful. (laughs) You know, when I first went to the KYM many, many years ago, I think this actual incident was maybe in 2006. I had heard that upstairs they were having a class for children who had epilepsy. And I thought, well, what is that about? Because in my mind, you know, yoga is for breathing. It's for interoceptive awareness. It's, it's for getting in touch with your, your deeper self. Like I understood all that, but like it never really occurred to me that something as serious as epilepsy could be, I don't know if you want to use the word managed, through yoga and yoga therapy. Is that surprising to you? Because I, you know, I think yoga therapy, many, many people are doing what we call shamanam, which is soothe the system, pacify, calm. I don't think there's very many people doing, you know, shotanam, which is to get to the root cause of why is someone having so many epileptic seizures? Do you have any thoughts about that? I think that's right. I think, you know, many people sort of perhaps take yoga therapy as as a pacification process. And that's, of course, you know, Kriya Yoga in our yoga sutras, which, you know, give us this fantastic model for helping us, a methodology, if you like, for being able to, to look at how we work with somebody. You know, the Vuha model where you have a look at what someone's presenting with and then you look at perhaps where that comes from, then you can look at where you'd like to go and how you're going to get there. But I think, you know, Kriya Yoga is a very, is a first step and that's the pacification point. But we need to have time and commitment 
if we're really going to go down the, you know, the deeper, the Shodanam path. And it takes tenacity and it takes patience. And I think it takes a relationship with the teacher. And, then, and you both have to be on that, that journey. I completely agree. And I'm going to say something a little controversial here. And that is that I'm not sure that some yoga therapists, yoga therapy training programs teach the shodhanam, the, the getting to the root cause of, you know, why is someone having epilepsy and actually being able to reduce the number of seizures, the intensity of seizures. And you could apply this to high blood pressure. You could apply this to diabetes. I mean, there's so many different things that yoga therapy can impact in the human system. But I think that's one thing that's really unique about the TKV, Deskachar, and Krishnamacharya tradition is I actually, during internships at the KYM, have seen what almost feel like a miracle to me that wait a wait a wait a minute how 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 are they impacting that disease pathology and not that we make promises to cure or heal but it's way beyond the pacification the shamanam to bring breath or interoceptive awareness so does that sometimes surprise you too that Krishnamacharya tradition helps people have less epileptic seizures. It's still, I, I almost have a hard time saying it because it seems like such a miracle to me. And I think, as you're absolutely right, we have to be terribly careful about the claims that we make. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it is every time it takes my breath away when I see something. But also I think it's, particularly because this tradition focuses on the individual. Mm. So often, I think, particularly nowadays, we want a recipe as, as teachers. We'd like a plan. We'd like a protocol because it makes us feel safe. You know, if as a teacher someone's got low back pain and I do X, Y, and Z, then they'll get better. And if I follow that plan, then that's great. I know I've done the right thing. But I think the way that we're trained to teach is different. And by following a plan without actually looking at the individual, we may, without intending to, actually do harm. Because what's right for one is not right for another. And I work with Dr. NC, mm -hmm. who was the head of therapy at KYM for many years. And if I went to him and I said, oh, what should I do for cancer? He'd look at me and he'd say, who is cancer? So Fred may come to me and I may think, oh, he's got bowel cancer, therefore I need to do such and such. But actually that's missing a trick because Fred is somebody who has three children, who is passionate about looking after bees, who loves gardening and happens to be a neuroscientist. He also, at this moment in time, happens to have bowel cancer. And it's by looking at that individual and then being able to choose the tools from the vast array that we have, sound being an important one, that I think we can make a profound difference if, as a teacher, we're in the right space. I completely agree. Let's, let's say there's a woman named Laura with bowel cancer that is 23 
in college, on the tennis team, loves to sing and dance with her friends on Saturday nights. I mean, she's going to receive something so, so different than Fred because of that individualization. We are who we are. There's 9 billion people nearly on the planet. How can one size fit all? It can't. And so just to go a little bit deeper into that for our listeners, for me, I look at like the hooks of that person, like Fred, the neuroscientist, he's got neuroscience hooks (laughs) and I'm going to place the tools and the techniques and the the, even the conversation that we're having around his neuroscience hooks. But for Laura, who loves playing tennis, I might guide my conversation and the things that I'm teaching her and connect them to her tennis game. Exactly. Exactly. And it's going to look really, really different and maybe even have different results. I think that's the other interesting thing about TKV Deskachar is he would say, we don't know what will happen, but hopefully good things will happen. <laughs> we don't know what happens or what will happen. And sometimes we'll be amazed and sometimes we'll wonder what goes on, which is why I think it's such a, a journey for the teacher as well. And I think that relationship between the student and the teacher, which I know you've talked about with Gita Shankar mm-hmm. and is so fundamental to, to the work that Deskachar did. It's absolutely fundamental because the teacher can show somebody the way. But at the end of the day, it is a collaborative relationship. And that person needs to want to and be inspired by the teacher to do that practice, whatever it might be. And as a teacher, we can't always control that. And that's a big part of it is that we can't control stuff. And we need to remember that. (laughs) What what do you think are some of the roles and responsibilities of a teacher to help guide towards the best possible outcome? Are there things that you feel a teacher should really kind of take heart and put effort into? I absolutely do. And I think a teacher has to walk the talk. Mm. I once was on a flight and I noticed a magazine and there was a thing about yoga, you know, so often. And the teacher in this little article said, you know, just occasionally I'm really naughty and I sneak in my own practice. And I just sat there thinking because certainly in this tradition, it's absolutely crucial that we have a practice that supports and holds us so that we begin to gain the clarity that we need to be able to see clearly and to see the person in front of us, not through a lovely fog of our own ideas and memories and projections. But as that person really is, and I know that Desika Char said that when you have a meeting with a student, it is a meditation on that student. You open yourself up to being in the present moment with them. And that doesn't happen without work on the teacher side too. And the teacher, certainly where we work, you know, has a mentor too. You can talk to, who you can say, you know, I'm not sure about this or can see you more clearly. And certainly on our on the guest lecture series you so kindly did with us, we talked about that about what we can see about ourselves and what others can see about us and what we can see in others. 
I don't know if you want to say something about yeah, that. that. That concept of Jahari's window. Sometimes I talk about that. Such a beautiful concept that other people can see things about me that I'm not seeing. I can see things about them that they're not seeing. There's <laughs> things we both see about each other. And there's things that neither one of us has any clue about. But I think to your point, and, and I really struggle with this, especially, you know, being a yoga therapy trainer, as students come through our program, a lot of them have never had a daily practice prior. And then we require that they do almost three years of a daily practice guided by a mentor. And it's such a foreign concept to them. And I'm not sure some of them ever get it. They, they do it, but I just want to take one last look before we go on at what that really means to do your own daily practice guided by a mentor. Why is it important to have a mentor from outside of you help guide you? Why can't I just do whatever my body feels like doing that day? Or one day I just want to do pranayama. The next day, I think I'll do 10 minutes of meditation. The next day I'll do a flow class. That's a daily practice, right? That's what I hear. So why do you think this idea of having someone in relationship with you over a long period of time, helping to guide your daily practice is so critical? It absolutely is. And I think you know, a, a clever, wise teacher will meet you where you are. So they will start where you are. And if you're into doing, you know, crazy, crazy asana, then they perhaps, and they think that actually pranayama is what you really need. If they're clever, they won't just say, forget the asana. They'll, they'll work with you. But there's yeah. something very important about consistency, about having a direction, both in terms of a short-term I don't like using the word goal, but a short-term direction and a longer-term path that someone can work with you on. And I think the best relationships between teacher and student are where there is a collaboration, where the teacher can perhaps see what it is that the student needs, but is ready and willing to listen to and ask the right question so the student begins to see it for themselves. Yeah. And they begin to understand that doing lots of Surya Namaskar may not be the right thing for them. What they really need to do is to lie down for 15 minutes after lunch <laughs> you and know, take the time out. <laughs> I'm such a perfect example of this that I kept injuring myself in my own yoga practice because my mindset was, I'm still 25 to 30 years old. I should be able to do this. And really, I'm in my 50s. Right. And so I kept injuring myself. And and when I got my first practice from Gita, it was like baby yoga. And I was just like, what? <laughs> but within three days, my back pain had disappeared and it pretty much has stayed away since. And I've I've gradually, you know, used that Krama approach, you know, to go step by step very slowly to be able to do a harder practice now. But I needed that outside reference point to say you know what, your normal patterns, Amy Wheeler, actually aren't working for you anymore. And that's Vinyasa Krama, isn't it? Yes. Which is one of the most important you know, directions that we have. Vinyasa, you know, an intelligent placement of, of asana or pranayama from somebody who can see from outside and then places it in such a way that it supports the body 
and works with the body so that it can do what it does best. And I think this is almost a full circle back to my daughter in that we're not doing anything. It is the prana. It is the body's own natural healing that we are enabling. We're offering a space for that healing to happen. And I think that is what is so extraordinary. So this comes to the responsibility of the students. We've talked a little bit about what what a great teacher can do, but in terms of the student, what is their responsibility towards the teacher and towards the practice? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and it's you know it's a fascinating question. And certainly one we talk about often at the beginning of our teacher trainings and our yoga therapy courses. You know, what is the student am I committing to? Because it is a commitment. And I think, you know, the Yoga Sutra Apyasa practice, you know, to respect the teacher, to work with the teacher, and to to commit to doing that practice and to reflect the Svatyaya, you know, the, the tools of Kriya Yoga, to look at them, to look at, to do the tapas, to do the practice, to have that discipline, and it is discipline, and to to a degree to talk with the teacher so that you come to a point where you agree the practice to do it, but then also to have that svatyaya where you start to reflect about your patterns and how you are and how you're feeling. Actually look at yourself in real time because that's quite a thing. And then, of course, the Ishvara Pranidana, to be able to accept, to accept what we see, which is quite tricky sometimes. <laughs> mm. I want to come back to that thread in just a minute, but let's let's fulfill this circle before we go back to that. You know, the, the problem that I see, and I don't even know if it's a problem, but the pathway that seems to happen is that our students are willing to do a daily practice given to them by a mentor that knows them and loves them and cares for them, but they have a really hard time letting go of their previous practice, whether that be yin yoga or ashtanga yoga or kundalini yoga. And so we tell them, you can do both. You can, you know, do this other one and do this one, which is hard to find two, two times a day. And maybe we start off really small with a 10 or 15 minute KYM practice. But if they're willing to do both, we eventually see that oftentimes they're willing to soften and, and over time, let go of some practices that maybe aren't serving them anymore and then grow slowly a practice that is a little more nourishing based on vinyasa krama. So what is your experience? That's just my experience, but what is your experience with that? We were talking about this just at the weekend. We find that if people come into their first teacher training, if you like, from the way that we've been teaching the tradition. It all goes swimmingly. This is what they know. They trust it. But as you say, people who come in from perhaps an old, a different background do have trouble letting that go. But what, what we've discovered, or I've certainly noticed, is that people over time just end up seeing the magic of it. And again, I'm sure perhaps other traditions say the same. So, uh, you know, this is simply my personal experience of working with TSYP, but that people see the beauty of, and the simplicity, the art of simplicity, and that actually they feel different. 
And then things start to change, I think. And then it's, you know, apiasa and vairagyam. You have to let go quite often of something. Yeah. Um, I think that key is they feel different. Like some something shifts inside like, oh, I'm approaching my daily life differently now. I'm approaching my spouse with a new set of eyes. I'm able to control my anger outbursts. You know, like something on that Vignana Maya layer, going back to that first quote that you had given on your website, something there shifts and then the magic is seen. Absolutely. Something shifts. And once that moment happens and people realize, for example, they have the ability to respond, not react, that actually their husband doesn't wind them up in the same way anymore, or whatever it happens to be, just as you say, they think there's something more extraordinary to this. Mm. And I think, you know, I, again, I can only speak from personal experience. I've noticed it with myself. I'm a much nicer person <laughs> from having practiced in this tradition. My handstands may not be a feature of my daily practice anymore, but it doesn't matter. I'm just an awful lot nicer. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to come back to because you were a lawyer prior to becoming a yoga person. And you had said that there was this point where you had a realization and you knew you, I guess, had to leave the life that you had been living. And there was a great sense of loss and sadness. Can you tell us a little bit about that story, if you're willing? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean, as I said in my, when I wrote to you, I can remember where I was standing, where I realized that if I wanted to live life in the way that I needed to, both in terms of other people, my approaches to other people, then this was something that I had to do. And like so many things, and we talked about this again at the beginning of today's podcast, I'm not sure that I was aware what I was looking for. And I don't think many people are. I think when we suddenly start to find something that is very different, that gives us a certain piece, a certain insight, then we want more of it. And that knowledge to me came and I thought, actually, I cannot do this in the way I would like to do it, typical A-type personality, unless I give up something else. And this is the time I have to shift away. And when we move away from something which we're very identified and, you know, I had a big job and, you know, people think lawyers are dead posh. Not that they are. But I had to give up something, you know, financially, time, kudos, and accept that this is what, for me, I had to do. And it was I had to do. There was no doubt. There was no doubt. And so there was a moment when you had that realization that I, I cannot go on in the direction I've been going. Totally. It was, you know, one of those moments. And I can, I remember I was standing in my room just thinking, gracious, this is what I have to do. And then how long did it take you to kind of unwind that version of yourself before you could kind of disconnect into a new way of being? A good three years. Okay, good. I like hearing that because I don't think it should be rushed. We shouldn't just toss out our our job and our spouse and our, you know, like there's a transition that happens over time. 
Yeah, and I did, you know, less work and gave up one job and worked part-time and did more yoga. And then it sort of just seamlessly turned into yoga, for which I am profoundly grateful, I must say. <laughs> profoundly grateful. Yeah, I've been going through the same thing, you know, two or three years ago, I went part-time at the university. And then just about eight weeks ago, I retired from the university, but it's been a two to three year transition to doing 100% yoga. Hmm. And I couldn't be happier. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, how are you feeling about it? Oh, gosh, I wake up smiling every day. And it's not that I didn't even, I didn't dislike working at the university, but my heart wanted to be here. And I just constantly felt torn between the two. If I had never discovered yoga, I could have gone on working at the university and life would have been fine. But once you resonate deeply with these teachings, you just want to imbue yourself in them with them all the time. It's it, There's a, a longing when you have to be torn away from it, I think. And look what it better. Yeah. <laughs> So I know that one of the tools of yoga that's really special to you that I guess probably helped to transform you from the inside out is mantra and Vedic chanting. Was it a, a personal thing that happened that you discovered sound and then learned more about it? I'd, I'd just like to hear a little bit about that. Within TSYP and in the teachings of Jessica Char. Sound is very much one of the important tools and it can be used in so many ways. If you think about it, we're made of vibrations and different sounds have different properties. So instinctively, a mother or a person will go hush or shh to a baby. So that's the sound shh or sha or shanti, which means peace, is a calming sound. Similarly, other sounds have different effects, can be more energizing, like a ha or a ra. It's far more heating. So we can use these sounds within an asana practice to work with somebody to help them in a direction. And that obviously goes on. You can give somebody a mantra. And a mantra everyone thinks about as being in Sanskrit, but of course it doesn't have to be. It can be anything for that that it, that it resonates for that person. I used to work in a hospital with cancer patients, and I was asked to go and see a lady, a young lady who was in her 20s, who had two young children on the ward, and she just had a big operation for bowel cancer, and she was Muslim. And she was finding it very, very hard to accept. And, you know, I can't even begin to imagine how I would be in that, in that situation. But she found it very difficult to touch her body. She found it very difficult to communicate with anybody. So I went to see her and she chose a mantra from the Quran, which had great meaning for her. So we worked with that and the asa touching the body. So a mantra can be anything that resonates for someone. And then, of course, you have the Vedic chanting, which is the, the mantras heard by ancient rishis when in deep meditation. And they're a chance for healing. They're a chance for peace. There are 
as a deeper chance and they're in Sanskrit and they have to be they have to be chanted very in a very precise fashion um, because the idea is is that we're using the words as they were given to us by these seers and it's not our place to then change them and that's different from perhaps kirtan or other forms of, of chanting and so that together is all a very very powerful tool if someone's very anxious and they're finding it very difficult to perhaps work with asana or whatever if you can offer somebody a sound like ma or sha then they can use it within their practice you inhale open your arms exhale chant ma immediately my breath lengthens my mind is engaged my body is moving and the breath is extending and so we have a more profound effect i want to read a, a kind of a quote that you had written in your notes to me from deskachar asana for the body pranayama for the mind and chanting for the soul i think that's really beautiful to think about three tools all being used together. You know, you're doing the, the arms apart, say in warrior one or Bhirabhadrasana, you're extending the exhalation, which is a breathing, or I don't know if we would officially call it pranayama. And then you're making the sound, which is vibrating deeply within you and around you. That's potent. It is. And I think one of the other interesting things is that we don't always have to know or understand what it is we're, we're chanting because the sounds work at an experiential level, not at an intellectual level. And I do believe that we're all so much in our heads these days. We need to know why, what, we need to think about it. Whereas actually this bypasses that part of the mind and, and gives us something as Desikachar says. And he would always say that when you offer people chanting, they always end up smiling. <laughs> mm. And then you're tapping into Anandamaya, of course. You're moving something within that emotional level that will affect the whole person. And that's obviously from the Panchamaya, that's from the Panchamaya model. Yeah. Right now, Gita, um, since my surgery has had me doing a lot of Nadi Shotana, but she has a very beautiful way that I'm doing it that I'd like to share, which is exhale through the left nostril slowly, mentally chant on the hold after exhale, Om Shanti. Inhale through the left slowly, mentally chant at the top of the inhale, Om Shanti. Then same thing, exhale right, Om Shanti. On the hold after exhale, inhale right, Om Shanti. On the hold after inhale. And it is just so different than doing only Nadhi Shotana. I mean, like profoundly different to just mentally chant Om Shanti on the holds. And I'm, I'm kind of amazed by it after, I don't know how you feel B, but even after 20 plus years of doing this, 
And then I get something new like that, that I've never done before. I'm just almost like a child in a candy shop with excitement. Like, wow, that feels different. That, that is having a new effect on me than any other time I've ever done this pranayama before. And that's where the relationship is so beautiful because it's somebody who found exactly the right thing for you at this moment. Who knows, perhaps it wouldn't have had the same effect at another time. But you know, working with a mantra in pranayama is very profound and, of course, very traditional rather than counting, which is what we can often do sometimes these mm. days. Not that that's not good for some people. It's great for some people. It was tailored for me, as we've been talking about. The Nadhishotana is to help my immune system and the om shanti chanting is for my mind and my heart recovering from what could have been a crisis that was averted but i just think that it's so beautiful that she put those two things together for me at this point in my life and it's exactly what i need right so I know your teacher was Radha, who is no longer with us due to complications from COVID, I believe. Tell us a little bit about Radha and her memory and studying with her. If you have any quotes you want to share from her. Yeah, Radha was formidable and adored. <laughs> it yes, she was. She was. Um, yes. Still is. <laughs> Still is, yes. She passed away in May 2021. And she was teaching right up until the very end. And she had worked with Sir, with um, Sri Jessica Char at the Mandaram for many years, setting up the Vedic Chantal. And she was somebody who had the most extraordinary ability to hear and to see. And we would be chanting in a room. We'd go away for a chanting teacher training course, maybe for 10 days. And we'd be chanting from 9 a.m. in the morning until 9 p.m. at night. And she would sit there very quietly listening to us. And obviously, we start by call and response. And then we chant. And she'd close her eyes. And she would go, B, you're not doing the right S. And I'd be thinking, how did I get picked up? <laughs> what, so you were in a group, but she yeah. could hear your voice. Every person. Wow. Every person. Every person. And you'd think you were getting away with it when you were chanting one-to-one -one with her. And then you just hear her go, huh? And you think, oh, no, I blew it. But the precision and her and her and her joy, you know, she she was joyful. She loved life. She was so engaged with us. And what was extraordinary is she, like you know, any good teacher, she really brought out the best in everybody. Really did. And I was somebody for whom chanting did not come easily. You know, it isn't something where I suddenly thought, oh, how lovely to chant. I must chant more. It was, it was a real struggle. And I, I thank her for her patience in, in teaching me because it isn't something that came easily. I thought it all a bit strange. I think many people do when they first get introduced to it. And like much about, you know, things, tools that we've been discussing, when you, something has an effect on you, a profound effect, you think, crikey, that is something very important and very special, and I need to find out more about it, if we listen to ourselves. Radha, she was not my teacher, but she had a profound impact on me because I watched her when I would visit the KYM and do internship practicum hours. She was one of the first women I had seen 
that was so sure of herself, so willing to set boundaries, so willing to do the right thing, even if she wasn't liked or appreciated. Like she just reminds me of the, the goddess Durga that through her presence, she shifted my perception of myself and what was possible for me in the world. And I think a lot of times we kind of forget that a lot of what we're doing in yoga is coming home to ourselves and allowing our true nature to emerge and our personality to be the best it can be. And I, that's what I think about Radha. She, through her presence, gave us permission to be wholly ourselves. Did you have that experience? Absolutely. And she would always talk when she taught us the Gayatri, you know, about how this isn't asking somebody or some higher power to give you courage and clarity. This is who you are. All it is is asking something higher to bring it out within you. And it was that ability. And in fact, you mentioned the Durga Suktam, which is a Vedic mantra about the goddess Durga. And it's the mantra about taking us from a place of suffering to a place of no suffering. And when we had the memorial, the chant that most people thought about in connection with Radha was Durga. <laughs> you, you just can't. Those two things go together like, you know, yeah. peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> yes. yeah. so, Give you confidence to be yourself, I think. That's mm, what you're saying. Yeah. And that's and what we're all aspiring to be, isn't it? We don't want to be all carbon copies of each other. We need to be who we are and the best side of ourselves. And that's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about transformation, when we talk about Shunnam, when we talk about working with these tools. Is that, you know, you get off, get rid of the rough edges and you start to let somebody just flourish like a beautiful flower that's been a bud, suddenly starts to open its petals and you're just in awe of the beauty of that person. So beautifully said. I love that about our tradition is the goal is to be more of you, not to try to emulate or copy or spiritually bypass or even try to fit into a mold so that we all kind of look alike, dress alike, like, no, that is not the goal. So I want to ask you, B, like from coming into chanting and sound and mantra and having it be really hard for you, how did you decide to stay with it and continue down that road? Because a lot of times when something's really hard and we just kind of say, oh, I don't want to do this. It's too much. But how did you keep leaning in and going towards it? Was there a, a process? I, we started off by using mantra and sound in asana. When I first started the course and I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. <laughs> As many, many, many people do. And then I went to Chennai and I had, something must have been kindled because I had a lesson with Radha. And we chanted the Lagunyasa which I'm sure you're familiar mm. with. And I started crying and I cried and I cried and I had no idea why. Did you know what the words meant at that time? I, no idea. Oh my. Well, I will, as, as the free gift for this week, I will include a copy of Lagunyasa <laughs> for our guests. Yes. So the, the vibration moves something within you. Yes, absolutely. And then like, as we've discussed, you know, I thought, 
I felt so great afterwards. Felt as though something had shifted. And I know that many people have this, this feeling. And you know, you don't have to go as far as bursting into tears. For many people, it's just the feeling of chanting connects themselves with that space that we've been talking about, Swatiya, you know, to come towards oneself, to go inside. And that's what chanting does. It's a form of meditation. And it's difficult to think about anything else when you're chanting some of these chants. <laughs> well, that's interesting because when I get a very rajas mind and my life is going too fast and I, I feel out of control, I am repelled by chanting. Like it's it's like I I'm like, nope, can't go there. But when I'm sattvic and when I'm feeling connected to myself and my li- life is a little slower, I crave it. I long for it. I I need it. I just want to say that because I think there are many of us at certain times where we did feel repelled and we did feel like, what is this weird thing? But I'd I'd like to have the listeners ask themselves, are you in a Raja state of mind? And if you were feeling much more balanced and centered, does it still bother you? Are you still repelled by it? I mean, just a, a reflection that the same tool, it may not be a tool you hate. It may just be the place you are in your life at this moment. I think it's like so much. When we are in a more satisfied state and when we are more balanced, that tends to be the time we crave going on the mat and finding that connection more deeply. And that's true for for chanting, and when we're all over the place, then we tend to say, oh, I don't need the mat, I haven't got time, don't need it. And actually, that's the time when we need it most. And then we put that one foot on the mat, and that's what I say to my students who are finding it difficult to have a personal practice. Just put your foot on the mat, or just have that breath, just connect to that breath, because in that moment, something can begin to change, get more clarity, and above all, we get more space. And dukkha, which course means suffering is a constriction of space yeah and and it is by recreating that space around us and within us that something begins to shift for me and i i'm noticing now the days that i don't feel i have time or i'm too agitated to do a practice that's my signal that life has gotten too fast and too full there's something off here, Amy, (laughs) and go through your calendar and start cleaning it. (laughs) I know know how you feel. (laughs) So there's a, a beautiful quote that you had written to me that Radha has said, would you mind reading that to us? Yes, I was very lucky. I went to see her in January, 2020, just before lockdown hit. Mm. And I had the opportunity to interview her. And this is what she said about the benefits of chanting or working with sound. And I'm quoting. She said, on a practical level, sound protects the body. How? Because you are in a constant exhale, which eliminates and gets rid of impurities at the physical level. At the mind level, the words bring calmness and serenity. And at the Vijnana Maya, The power of discrimination between right and wrong, chanting gives you special clarity. Finally, at Anandamaya, you are totally linked to the highest force. Yoga means to move inwards, 
Amongst the many spiritual tools, sound is one of the most powerful. Vedic mantras work deep inside at an emotional level, releasing negative emotions and creating an inner confidence that is unbelievable. So chanting is a very high spiritual practice. You do not need to understand what you are chanting. Chanting is not an intellectual practice. It is the experience that matters. You need to go and sit alone in a small room. Chanting is a state of tiana, meditation. Just so beautiful. I've been having this experience that I signed up for a nine-month Vedic chanting course on abundance and prana shakti. And at the beginning of the course, I had surgery on my tongue. And I'm not actually able to chant out loud very well. But I've been doing the whole course mentally. And it's been a profound experience, I have to say, even for those people who don't like the sound of their own voice or are embarrassed to hear their vibration coming out through sound, you can do it all mentally. And that could even be more powerful. What do you think? I would say so. I mean, I think when we're practicing, perhaps we start out loud. And I think that's important too because so many of us have a problem mm. with hearing our own voice. And I think that's that's powerful in itself. And then we perhaps chant more quietly. But then as we move more internally, so we chant internally, as you suggest. And, and for me, in a way, then the vibrations are even more contained. Yeah. Um, and that's what is, I felt. Yeah. Very, very beautiful experience. And it, it really does lead into deep meditation. It takes us there. Yeah. Well, B, I feel like we've had a wonderful conversation today. Is there any last little bits that you really wanted to make sure that you spoke about today? We're going to talk about your upcoming events at the Society of Yoga Practitioners in the UK, but is there anything else that you want to share? A short practice? Sure. Um, I think so often we've been talking about how we we can work intellectually and we've talked a lot, but there's something actually about working with the breath as we do and with sounds. And we've been talking a lot also about working with individual people. And so I am offering this for you. I've been thinking about you. And so I've designed a practice for you, but again, you may not choose to do it now. You may choose to do it another time, but it's also for anyone. Mm, so. Lovely. I'm very pleasantly surprised and <laughs> very, very willing to receive this from you. Those people that don't know, I recently had tongue cancer and had surgery to remove part of my tongue. And so when B says she's had me in her heart and designed this for me, this I think that's a good context for people to know if they hadn't heard that. So if you just come to sit quietly, sit on the chair where you are, it's perfect. And make sure your feet are nicely, comfortably grounded. You can feel the ground beneath your feet. Stability of the ground. The steadiness. 
through your feet and also your sitting bones on the chair. <clears throat> that connection you have through your sitting bones, through your legs, to your feet. And then you can have your hands, if it's comfortable for you, resting on your thighs. Again, connecting with that place of steadiness. You feel your hands from your legs. You can feel your legs through your hands. Have an awareness of your shoulders and your mouth gently relaxing. Only if it's comfortable, you're welcome to close your eyes. Just observe the sounds that you can hear around you. You may hear birds, it may be still. You may hear the rustling of the wind or the trees or a car or a plane. And then begin to bring your attention more internally to the breath. Just observing how it is right now. I'm going to offer you a very short mantra with which I'm quite sure you're familiar. For those people who are listening, this is from a mantra called Ayurdehi, which asks for our life to be strengthened and nourished. Ayur meaning life, Dehi, strengthened or nourished. And I will chant it. And then, if you'd like to, you can chant it mentally. Ayur Dehi. Chant with me. Ayur Dehi. Print yourself just mentally. And then bring your fingertips onto the center of your chest. Feeling that connection. And as you breathe in, just allow your arms to open, your chest to open, a feeling of space to come through your body. And exhale, bring your hands back, feeling the moment they touch your chest. Working in your own time, breathing in to open, Allowing your body to fill with the breath. Pausing and then exhaling. Letting your arms float back and touch your chest. Repeating in your own time. Just allowing your arms to open and close with the breath.
And just once more. Take a breath there, feeling that connection through your hands to the heart center. And come to bring your hands back to rest on your lap, but your palms facing up. Now, as you breathe in very lightly, bring your thumb and your index finger just to touch. And as you exhale, just allow your hand to open as if it was a bud opening to the sun. Then repeat with your middle finger, breathing in to bring your thumb and your middle finger together so lightly and then exhaling to open again. Breathing in, thumb to ring finger. Exhaling, open. And little finger. And then allow your hands to rest as they are with the palms up and just take a breath. Just observing how you feel now. And bringing your hands back to the center of your chest. Feeling the steadiness through your feet and your sitting bones, the softness of your shoulders. And I'm just going to chant Om Ayurthihi. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. Om Ayurthihi. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. When you're ready, just allow your hands to come back to your lap and your eyes to open. Oh, thank you, dear B, for that. Really, as you say, simple, elegant, but profound practice that shifted my state just in a few minutes to that more soft, subtle version of myself that I really enjoy. <laughs> it's magic. Don't know how it works, but it's magic. I know. <laughs> it is. It really is. So, B, if people want to get in touch with you as the chair of the Society of Yoga Practitioners for the last couple of years, it does rotate as it's a nonprofit and different volunteers come forward, they can go to www.t as in Tom, S as in Sally, Y as in 
yes, P as in platypus <laughs> dot yoga. And you have some really nice events coming up. Some of them are free. So tell us a little bit about, first of all, on June 21st. It's the International Day of Yoga. It is the summer solstice. And it is also TKV Desika Child's birthday. I um, love that he was born on that day. He couldn't have been born any other time, could he? Yeah. Um, and so we are offering a free yoga practice on Zoom at 7 a.m. UK time. So you can look at it, you can find it on the event section. Blessings of the Sun. So anybody can join. It's on Zoom. Please, please do come and enjoy this tradition's approach to yoga. There will be some asana, some pranayama, I'm sure, and perhaps some meditation. We're also having a conference in November called Mind Your Mind, which you will be speaking at, I hope, mm -hmm. which is going to look at using the tools of yoga for mental health. This is also on Zoom, so anybody can come and join. This is also free, and the sessions will be recorded. So we really invite people to come. We'll be looking at some of the tools. We'll be looking at definitions. And we're, of course, hugely excited to welcome you as one of our guest speakers. Do um, you have a date on that? It's in November. Yes, yes it is November the 12th and 13th. And again, um, that's all free for anyone who wants to yeah. join. Please join us. And we can have the recordings as well afterwards. And we're also running a Vedic chant teacher training course, which is beginning in September. And there are still places that's in person. And there are other ones which are foundation courses in Vedic chants. And a yoga teacher training next year will start. And a yoga therapy course will start next year. So we're busy bunnies. And there's lots of other events. So please come and look and see what we have to offer. Well, I just want to thank you for providing all of these opportunities free and also, of course, you know, there are costs associated with, with putting on all of these events. So there are also paid events, but I just think what you're doing is such a, a beautiful service to the world. And I thank you and everyone that's involved with the Society of Yoga Practitioners. Yes. And we are an absolutely amazing team. I'm not going to name everyone, but everyone knows who they are. And this is about extraordinary teamwork and effort mm. and of course we're part of you know a wider community we have the kym we have other organizations in england including ays and of course your extraordinary work in the states so yeah thank you so much b thank you amy <laughs> please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list where we give you a free gift every single week it's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content and that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. 
If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.